Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning, and uh, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 128 today as we continue our series through uh, the Psalms of Ascents, the Psalms of Degrees. We've called this series a Social Distancing Survival Kit, and today we come to Psalm 128, and I'm going to title this message, Happy Family. I want to ask you a few questions to start our time together to get our, our mental juices flowing, so just answer these quietly to yourself. Are you overcommitted? Do you find it almost impossible to say no? Do you struggle with peer pressure? Now, I know that oftentimes we think that's something that only happens in adolescence, but do you give in to things, maybe even against your will, just to fit in? Are your relationships more about being loved and seeming like a loving person rather than actually loving other people how about this are you easily crushed by criticism do you feel trapped by people's praise or their jeers are you obsessed with your body is self-esteem critical for you do you ever feel like you might be or you're fearful that you will be exposed as an imposter Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what people may think? Do you feel empty, meaningless? Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you find yourself lying, covering up for yourself, or perhaps um, even telling what we would refer to as white lies? Are you jealous of other people? Just a couple more. Do you find yourself regularly depressed or angry because of relationships, how they are? what their status is? Do you find yourself avoiding people? When you compare yourself with others, do you feel good or bad? Now, all of those symptoms would be described as something that has a cause. You know, we're good in our society of describing and clustering together symptoms and giving people categories and giving them titles about what their diagnosis is. But the scriptures are better than just giving us a diagnosis. It actually doesn't just tell us what the problem is, but it tells us why the problem is. So the scriptures tell us that these symptoms, even if they're clustered, maybe some of them are true, some of them are not as true as others, there is a malady called in the scriptures the fear of humans or the fear of man that's being described. If If you find yourself saying yes to many of those questions, you perhaps are struggling with and being captivated by the fear of humans, the fear of man. Listen to Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And you may recall in John 12, in verses 42 to 43, there were a group of people that would not listen to the teaching of Jesus. And here's what Jesus said about them. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory or the praise that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, the scriptures actually put these two two, um, thoughts or life views beside one another and say that they're mutually exclusive. In other words, they can't exist correspondingly. There is no equivalence to them. 
In other words, we cannot fear God and fear man at the same time. You see, the actual reason why we fear humans and we have this sense that they could expose us or they could expose us as imposters or whatever the the feeling is towards humans, that fear cannot coexist with what's referred to in the scriptures as the fear of God. Now, the fear of God is going to be prominent throughout the scriptures. It finds its real significance in this, psalm, in this group of Psalms of Degrees right here in Psalm 128. So I want to deal with it in that term because I believe that that's the main theme of this psalm, the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. And I want us to be thinking in terms of when our fear of humans is large, our fear of God is small. When our fear of God is grand, our fear of humans and what they can do to us is meager, it's paltry, it's small. And that's the way it's supposed to be. So the view we have of our God, our fear of Him, will make our fear and our entrapment of the opinions of humans small. So which one is largest in your life this morning? Maybe that would be a better question that would be asked of someone who's close to you. But most of us can answer in terms of motivations pretty candidly. What motivates you? What causes you to do the things that you do? Is it the fear of God or the fear of man? They cannot coexist. They cannot cohabit. They exist side by side. So we either fear God and the fear of man is small, or we fear man and the fear of God is small. Now, look at Psalm 128 with me, please. Hope you've turned to it. Hope you've read it through a couple times. There are a lot of places in Scripture, and this is what we refer to as the clarity of Scripture, that means that we as believers can read God's Word and understand it. We don't have to have multiple Bible degrees in order to understand God's Word. We don't have to know the original languages. There's a clarity of Scripture that really fits into the tennis shoes of life. That's what I love about the Scriptures, and there are certain places that are even clearer than others. Now, that is not to say that there's not a need for teaching and preaching. That is a gift that God has given to the local church. But what it's to say is that the Scriptures are generally clear. They, they don't need all kinds of extensive education and higher education to understand them the plain sense makes common sense most of the time but there are some passages that are just so crystal clear it's like you know what you read that passage maybe one time and you got it last night we read this scripture passage in preparation for today as a family and it was kind of fun to just ask the family that heard it read what's it mean and they were right they were able to pick out some words that come up a few times in Psalm 128, and then they were able to see some phrases, and they were able to put the whole theme together real quickly. So they may be wondering, Dad, why are you preaching this message to us? We already have it. Well, there's a few things I'd like to add to the understanding, but one of the things you're going to notice in this psalm is the word blessed comes up three times in our translation. It could be translated four times in some versions, you'll notice that it's translated the word bless in verse 5, and then the word prosperity in verse 5. These are actually two different Hebrew words for bless. One word, ashrei, is the word that is mentioned in verse number 1 and verse number 2. And it's in the plural. 
it, it kind of translates awkwardly for us to say all the blessednesses that are available, but it's translated in our scriptures quite often as the word happy. You'll notice that the psalm starts this way. Book number one of the psalms, of the 150 psalms, starts, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. But the word can be translated happy. And I think that's probably a better translation. This is a happy psalm. And it says there's a happy person. And you'll notice this phrase, fears the Lord, in verse 1, is repeated as a bookend in verse 4. Fears the Lord. And in between that, and even afterwards, there's somewhat of a benediction that was probably given by the priest when they actually arrived at the temple after this long journey. But what's included is family life. Very domesticated themes of marriage and children and work. And he's saying that there is a happiness to the family who fears the Lord. Now, I've got that on your handout if you printed that out. Here's the major theme of this psalm. It just really jumps out at you after you read it a few times and you see these repetitions. The other word for blessed, the Hebrew word barak, has a similar idea of, of happiness, that there's great blessedness when we live in the fear of the Lord. You know, oftentimes we will hear people even describe the Christian life that life of a believer, a life of a follower of Christ, is something that must be very restrictive. It must be very depressing, but you guys are hoping for a better country, and so you just kind of push through. I appreciate what Calvin said years ago about this psalm. He said it this way, We must develop better and deeper concepts as believers of happiness that those, than those who dwell in the world which make their happy life to consist of ease, honor, and great wealth. So what Calvin is saying is what many who have studied this psalm say, that we need to really broaden our understanding of the happiness that's involved, the blessednesses, in plural, that are involved in living life the way God intended it to be lived. You see, the Christian life is, is a reversal of the curse, is putting back together what was broken and lost at the fall. And we're being created back into the image of Christ. So the theme here is, happy is that family who fears Yahweh, Jehovah, his personal name. So here's a question for us. How happy is your family? I didn't just say blessed. That sounds like a good Christianese word, blessed. It sounds like a deep-toned pastoral word. But I ask you, how happy is your home? Is it a happy place? Is it a place where this psalm describes your kids sitting around your table like little olive shoots and your wife like a beautiful grapevine? Now, those may, images may not be the best for us today in understanding the happy family, but he does this in Hebrew poetry. So let's read it together with this major theme in mind. And you'll see it, I think, as you read through the Psalm 128. Happy is the family that fears the Lord. Now, I'm going to ask you to say that with me right there in your house, okay? And we have a few people here today, and I know they're going to participate because they know that helps me. So here we go. We're going to say that together. Happy is the family that fears the Lord. They did a really nice job here. How did you do? Let's say it one more time. Happy is the family that fears the Lord. I even got an amen, and I'm not sure that you heard it 
but it was good. Psalm 128, here it is. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now just a reminder where we're at. We're studying a group of 15 psalms that all have the same superscription, psalms of ascents, psalms of going up, psalms of degrees. These were used by the people of God as they would make their annual feast travels and it would be the songs that they would sing along together. But they're in triads, which means they're in groups of three. And you'll notice we are coming to the end of one of those triads. And so each of the triads typically will start with mourning and groaning, a desire to be released. The next one will have something to do with some wisdom. And then the third will be a rival. They've gotten to Zion. And you see these triads repeating themselves. Here in Psalm 126, a little different than some of the other woe psalms are the psalms of lament. They actually thought they were in a dream. They were reviewing and remembering and reminiscing how that they were able to be rescued from Babylon. And it was like a dream. And then last week, Psalm 127, there was that real wisdom that we received from Solomon about the Lord being the builder, the Lord being the sentinel or the watcher. He's the workman. He's the watcher. And then there's no need for worry because our God is sovereign and he's in control. And now we come to Psalm 128. Now I want you to see there's really a tight connection between 127 and 128. We don't believe that this psalm was written by Solomon, but perhaps it was. You'll notice that the connection is found in verse 5, and it's in that word, happy. There we're told, happy is the man who has his quiver full of these arrows, the children are called. And then that, that word is brought again back to the forefront in Psalm 128. I just want to answer a few questions this morning and we'll be done. Here are the three questions. I want us to ask the question, what is the definition of the fear of the Lord? What are the blessings or benefits of the fear of the Lord? And then finally, how can we grow in the fear of the Lord? First of all, what is the definition of the fear of the Lord? This phrase is central in your Bible. As you study the scriptures, it is not a foreign phrase. I'm certain as you hear it, you're not going, wow, I've never heard that before. You've heard this phrase, the fear of the Lord, from beginning to end. As the southern pastors would say, from cover to cover, including the maps, you would see this phrase, the fear of the Lord. We're told in Proverbs, things like this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not just knowledge, but it's the, it is the beginning, the start of knowledge applied, of skillful living. We're told in the Psalms that those who fear the Lord, the angel of the Lord, which I believe has reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus, he encamped around those who feared him. We're told in Ephesians 5 that we're to submit to one another in our relationships in the body of Christ. In other words, show deference to one another. A word we need right now, I believe, as God's people who are very prone, there's this proclivity that we have too, even in our, our redeemed state as we work out our sanctification, to choose sides about peripheral issues 
and to divide up the body of Christ. And he says in Ephesians 5 that one of the reasons we submit to one another is in the fear or the reverence of Jesus. So this idea of the fear of the Lord is found throughout the scriptures. But what exactly does it mean? Fear God sounds a little bit archaic. It sounds antiquated. Perhaps even as you hear it, it sounds old-fashioned to you. I mean, you may be asking, what would be wrong? I mean, that's got to be something wrong with a person who would talk about fearing God. I mean, isn't God a God of love? Why would you fear him? Well, the Old Testament and the New Testaments make this a central teaching. So we need to know what exactly is it. Well, I want you to think of a continuum, or maybe for simple, to simplify it, think of a ruler, maybe. On the right side, you would have certain deaf words, and then all the way on the left side, you'd have another one. And all of this continuum, all of this ruler, represents fearing God. I mean, there is an element of terror, and so we're going to put that on the far right side. So if you were placing words on a continuum, on a line, trying to understand what this concept of the fear of the Lord is, I want us to put terror on the far right, because there's an element to that. I don't want to gut it of the the terror that the God of heaven, the God who we should fear falling in the hands of the living God, our God, we're told, is a consuming fire. And there is a side of the fear of the Lord that starts with terror. And one of the most loving things I could say to those of you that are tuned in right now is some of you need to be afraid of falling into the hands of the living God. Because there is a certain fear and terror that comes with understanding that He's God and we're not. That every breath we breathe is granted to us by this holy, altogether other God. So on that side, I want you to see terror. But then I want you to move to to maybe dread. And then we could put another word, trembling. That's a visual word. Then we'd go astonishment as we keep moving towards the left. And then maybe another word that we would add to that after astonishment would be awe. You know, open mouth open-throated praise, and then, then reverence. And then we keep moving to the left to, to devotion and, and trust. And then all the way to the left on this, this continuum, I want you to see the word worship. So, so the fear of the Lord is, is somewhat all-encompassing. And I don't want to just say, well, it's just, just worshiping God and having respect for Him. It's not any of this terror. Well, yes, it actually is a terror. I mean, if we know the God of the Bible, my Bible reading right now is reading through the book of Numbers. And as I read through the book of Numbers and I see how God is dealing with His people as they were disobedient to Him, and when there was that unmitigated wrath that His holy nature let bleed out onto the people, it was a reminder that our God is a consuming fire. So so there is an element of terror, but I want you to see that that continuum goes all the way to an understanding of who God is and who we are and what God has done to rescue us that leads to worship. Many of you have watched or read The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia by Lewis. And you may remember that at this one moment during The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, that Lucy is asking the question about Aslan, the lion, is he safe? 
Mr. Beaver said, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. You know, what was Lewis getting at in that novel? Well, he was getting at this truth that there is a terror when we understand who God is and who we are. But that terror can lead to worship and lead to trust. And that is the fulfillment of this kind of the fear of the Lord that's described. One person has described the fear of the Lord this way. It is a radical God-centeredness that shapes every aspect of our lives. You see it worked out in places in the scriptures like this. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. You'll notice there's some interpretation even in Psalm 128 verse 1. Look at this. Who walk in his ways. In other words, the fear of the Lord is unmistakably expressed. It's expressed in concrete expressions by obedience. Some people, as soon as they hear this, would say, that's legalism. Well, no, legalism is trying to obtain God's favor. Obedience is wholehearted submission because of our understanding of who God is and who we are. And what he says here is, those that walk in his ways, they demonstrate in a concrete fashion that they fear the Lord. Jesus put it this way, if you love me, keep my commandments. So this is not a terror that we saw on this far side of the continuum. It's actually worship that's lived out in obedience. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says it this way, if you understand all those mercies described in Romans chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11, then you'll present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your personal, spiritual, here it is, worship. Now I want you, you're already in Psalm 128, and in two weeks we'll be in Psalm 130, God willing. I want you to turn there, because I want you to see a verse that is very relevant to leaving just the terror of this great God to the trust and the worship that's on the other side. Look at Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you, that is God, there is what? Do you see it there? But with you, there is forgiveness. And look at the rest of the verse. That you may be what? Feared. Have you ever seen this in the Scriptures? That our trust and our worship and our fear of the Lord actually grows and expands, not because we're just afraid of His wrath. It's because He has forgiven us. You see, the grace that's extended to us and forgiveness actually causes us to fear Him in this fear of the Lord way. You see, that word Lord, I mentioned to you, if you turn back to Psalm 128, is in all caps. It's in all caps in verse 1, it's in all caps in verse 4, and it's in reference to God's personal, intimate name. And he's saying because God has covenanted himself to us, and now as those who are on the other side of the cross, we look back and we understand that the grace that was shown to us at the cross now causes us to grow in fear of the Lord. But this is a different kind of fear. I mean, we see Adam and Eve after they'd sinned against God in the garden, running from God. But the fear of the Lord described in the New Testament is actually a fear that causes us to run to God rather than away from Him. You see this in Hebrews 12 when two different kinds of worship are described, one at Mount Sinai and then one at Mount Zion. 
And we are described as those who come to Mount Zion. Not with the fear and trembling about the mountain shaking and the lightning and the thunder and the earthquakes and the smoke. But we come to, to join that great congregation that's around the throne right now, already rejoicing and worshiping Christ. We join them in the fear of God. Do you see the difference here? One person, again, has described it as radical God-centeredness because now everything that we do becomes an expression of our understanding of our relationship with Jehovah, with God, through Christ. Keller has defined it this way, and I've got this in your notes. The fear of the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and His love. Another way we could understand this is to see that as we study this whole topic of the fear of God in the Old Testament and New Testament, we we come to the conclusion that there's this paradox. Stay with me for a second. There's a seeming contradiction between two emotions. Every believer is supposed to have this huge boldness, according to Psalm 130 verse 4, that God loves you in Christ, he's forgiven you, But at the same time, we're supposed to have a humility that knows that we were saved by grace, not by our works. You see, this fear of God actually grows through the gospel, through the cross, and through the grace of forgiveness that we see in Psalm 130, verse 4. So let me ask you something. Are you growing in the fear of the Lord? Well, the key to growing in this kind of fear of the Lord, this worship and trust, fear of the Lord is by understanding the power of the good news of the gospel. You see, people who are performance-driven, for instance, they're kind of bold if they've had a good week. You know what that's like? You, You can know if we're growing in the fear of the Lord if you had a good week and perhaps you didn't fall prey to that sin that you so easily fall prey to, and you're kind of you're kind of bold this week, and you're looking down on all those humble peasants who didn't have a good week. Or if you didn't have a good week and you're basing it on performance, you are humble because you didn't have a good week. But but the understanding of the gospel is this. We were so sinful that Jesus needed to die for our sins. That That should bring humility. But we were so loved that Jesus died for our sins. That should bring boldness. So again, another definition that may be a good working definition for us on the fear of the Lord would be this. It is this awe-filled or wonder-filled, bold humility. It's what Hebrews 4 describes as coming boldly to the throne of grace with great confidence, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this fear of the Lord, it is this wonder-filled, bold humility. It is this God-centeredness that shapes all of our lives and causes us to want to obey his commandments. Now, what are the benefits? And I'm going to go through these quickly. He does it in poetic fashion, and he starts talking about the home. And he says, the fear of the Lord is going to bless our productivity in work, our progeny in our family, and our peace. First of all, he says about productivity, he says, there's going to be blessedness to the hardworking because the fear of the Lord is going to cause us not to be lazy. We see this echoed in Colossians and Ephesians that one of the ways we demonstrate our being filled with the Spirit is by not being men-pleasers 
in our productivity, in our work, but we have an eye to the audience of one. But then he describes the family, and look how he describes it. He says, your wife's going to be like a fruitful vine within your house. Now, I know that's not the, the, the imagery that many of us husbands would get good points for today if you said, honey, I just want you to know that you're like a fruitful vine within our house. But this same imagery was used, and perhaps this, this means Solomon had some to do with writing this psalm, is same imagery used of the erotic beauty of the Song of Songs um, book about his wife. But all we need to say is this. The description is she's going to be fruitful, and that's not just in relation to having children, but she's a vine that's fully planted in her home. Now some would say, well, does that mean a woman can't work without the home? No, that's not the description here, but it's saying that's where her roots go down deep. That titus of, of managing the home and letting that be her, her center occupancy or her center vocation. She may be busy like the Proverbs 31 woman and all sorts of other endeavors, but she's firmly like a vine planted there. And then the kids are described, how are they described? As little olive shoots. And if you can just imagine the, the beauty I understand of olive shoots is you can, you can prune them and they come back so quickly. And that's the picture here. And they are of great strength and great value, the olive oil that's there. And he goes on and he says, Behold, just shall, shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And later on he begins to say, You are going to see your children's children. So this blessedness that comes to a home is directly connected to fearing the Lord. Please hear this. I know that we have parents and grandparents, and I don't think that verse 6 is just saying it's a wonderful blessing to be a grandparent. While I understand that it's a wonderful blessing to be a grandparent, but I think this is the, 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 the poetic versus um, view of looking forward in the future. And he's basically saying the one that fears the Lord, the man, the woman, the parents who fear the Lord, you became a grandparent when you had your first child. Because you begin to pour into their lives the thing that they're now going to pour into your grandchildren's lives. And they're going to pour into the next generation. And he's saying this kind of fear of Jehovah passes on to future generations. So dads, moms, grandparents, hear this. What's the greatest thing you can do for your kids or your grandkids? Does it give them a good education? That's important. Does it buy them a lot of stuff? They'll love you for that, or like you. Is it to leave them a good inheritance? Is it to make sure that you kind of let them step on your shoulders and be higher and better than you were? I want to tell you that there's one essential that we need to give our children, and it's the fear of the Lord. See, this passage is saying that's true godly gospel gladness. That is true happiness. That is true blessedness. Now, listen to Proverbs 14, 26. You should jot this down in your scriptures. It says, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And listen to the rest of the verse. And his children will have a refuge. So dad, getting up early in the morning, not to just get some more hours in at work so that you can bring home more money, versus getting up early to spend a half hour in the word of God, and then maybe 15 minutes in prayer for your family. Which one is the greater investment? 
what is the, what is the greater long-term pouring in? He, he's saying the fear of the Lord, this gives your children refuge. I want to finish with, how can we grow in this fear of the Lord? And I've given you quite a few points here, and some of those are scaring you because you're probably thinking, how will he do it in two minutes? I just want to fly over these. First of all, press into the gospel. Jesus has died for you. He's the mediator of the new covenant. You have been forgiven. And the more we press into the good news of the gospel, the more our adoration and our worship and our trust for the Lord will grow. Secondly, fill your mind with the Scriptures. There's an inseparable connection between the fear of the Lord, you'll see in verse number 1, as well as the Scriptures. Number three, consider doing a biography of God. It's knowing the Lord, knowing the greatness of God, the majestic greatness of our God. Practice the presence of God. The old-time believers used to talk about this. Psalm 139, knowing that He's everywhere that we go. He, he is with us. He sees our rising up and our sitting down. Surround yourself with other God-fearers. If you have no fear of God or your fear of man is great and your fear of God is small, ask yourself, who do you spend the most time with? Are you companying with people who spur you on to the fear of the Lord, to the trust of God, to the things of eternal? And finally, ask God to grow you in the fear of the Lord. Now look how the psalm ends. It's interesting. It starts with fear and it ends with peace. And he talks about the peace of Zion. And for the Old Testament saint, that was where the people of God would gather. But now in this time period, we gather as God's people. And do you see how the family and the church are not placed in competition, but they're placed in connection? Intimate, seamless connection. Now right now, we're not able to meet. So we're all on an equal platform here, an equal ground. But I want to say to all of us, while we're stuck at home and not able to gather, have you ever tried to think of in terms of, I've got family and then I've got church? I, we should not see it that way when we understand the fear of the Lord. We should actually see these things intertwined. And, and what's flourishing and the peace and the shalom, it's, it's not family and church pitted against one another in competition, but rather a combination, a sweet Wonderful combination. So this is a faith issue. It takes a fight. We don't have the fear of the Lord just happen overnight. We grow in it. So I want to finish with some questions for you like I started. Do you believe that pleasing God is more important and more satisfying than pleasing people? Do you believe that God is the only one to whom you will give an account at the end of the age? Do you believe that God has forgiven you all of your sins in Christ? because of His Son's shed blood, and that Jesus needs none of your self-abuse to make you suffer enough, and none of your feelings of, of misery to make you love more? And do you further believe that there's not a hell on earth or a hell to come that can take away the Father's smile that He has for you now because you're in Christ? See, this fear of God is not just stark terror. It starts there. But as we understand who our God is and now our relationship to God through Christ, we run to Him and not from Him. So where we fear God, the fear of man diminishes. Where the fear of man increases, the fear of God diminishes. May we be happy families. May we see this blessedness in our families' lives. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your clear word that meets us where we're at, written thousands of years ago, yet so relevant for what we're going to do this afternoon and this evening and tomorrow. May you grow our families with gospel gladness. May they be happy because they are being led in the fear of the Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.